listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking to Korean adoptee and award-winning writer James Han Matson, or Jim, as he's known by family and friends. There's so much in this conversation that we hardly know where to start. Well, okay, we start with Jim's path to becoming a writer, which was perhaps not what you might expect, and the moment when his Iowa acceptance letter arrived in the mail. Jim treats us to two readings of his work. First, an extended excerpt from his recent novel, Reprieve. And second, his Letter to a Stranger essay for the literary magazine Off Assignment, which is about a pivotal moment during his time living in Korea. We discuss some of the themes explored in Reprieve, including the complex intersections between love, desire, and racial preferences, as well as the challenges of learning one's birth language in one's birth country, while you're also so deeply engaged in your craft as a writer who publishes in the English language. Finally, Jim tells us about how his time in Korea changed his writing, and gives us the scoop on his new novel in progress, which features a Korean adoptee protagonist. James Han Matson was born in Seoul and raised in North Dakota. He reunited with his birth family in 2009. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he is the award-winning author of two novels, The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves and Reprieve, which was a fall 2021 book pick by the New York Times, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, The Guardian, Esquire, Entertainment Weekly, and The Today Show, among others. He's currently the fiction editor of Hyphen Magazine. Well, hi, Jim. Thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. It's so nice to see you again after um, your wonderful workshop for us. Thanks for having me. So um, perhaps we'll start with, um, I I think from a young age, you were an avid reader and um, like at what point did you just, I don't know, decide to pursue writing more seriously and then, you know, apply for MFA programs, I guess. That, that was a convoluted question. But anyway, just curious about your beginnings. Sure. Uh, well, like you said, I always love to read. I'd, I always, um, uh, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I, I liked reading. And most of the reading that I did was fiction. I didn't really think of writing as a career or doing it seriously until I graduated from college. Um, so I went to college in Minnesota and then um, I didn't have a job or anything. So I, uh, you know, kind of just hitched a ride with a friend to Northern California um, and just ended up staying there for three years. But while I was there, I, I worked, you know, a number of jobs. And one of the jobs that I worked at was this place called the French Hotel, uh, which is in North Berkeley. And I just worked there at night, sat at the desk. It was a really small boutique hotel across from Shape Panisse, if anyone knows, you know, North Berkeley. Um, yeah, it was cute. And there was really not much for me to do because mostly when I got there, everyone was checked in. So really all I did was like, for some reason, our electricity would go out. So I'd have to like... <laughs> redo the circuit breakers or whatever. And a few times I have to like kill bugs for people, but that's really like all I did. Um, and there's, and so mostly I just read for like four hours. I worked the seven to 11 shift. And I remember reading a particular book uh, and I won't say the name of it, but I remember thinking 
as I was getting towards the end of the book that like I could do it better. <laughs> like I, I thought I could, I, I could write this book better than this author. And that gave me the idea of like maybe trying to write a book. And so I asked my boss at my day job, if I could just stay after and use the computers um, because I didn't have a laptop at that time. And she said, yes, that's fine. And so I would stay after on the nights that I didn't have to work at the hotel, I would stay after at my day job job and uh just you know write for a couple hours um and like within like i don't know like four months i had like a novel um it, it wasn't very good but like i i had a, a book and um i was really pretty astounded with myself i was like i couldn't i can actually do this and so that's when i decided that i would I would try to do it as a, uh, like seriously. And I knew if I stayed in the Bay area, there was just so many, there are so many things going on for me out there. Meaning like, I was just, I was just distracted a lot. And I lived with like these guys that were just really kind of always on my case. And anyway, they ended up kicking me out of the house that I lived in, in, in Oakland because I wasn't like, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't like social enough. I mean, it's kind of Northern California ethos. Like, I just wasn't social enough with like, uh, with them in the house. And so they kicked me out and I found like that was a good opportunity for me to just get out of the Bay area and like, um, go somewhere where I could just concentrate on writing. And so I ended up going to Nebraska. I spent four years in Nebraska. And I took some classes because I hadn't had any creative writing classes. I took a few classes at the University of Nebraska. And I took a, uh, I went to a conference in the summer um, where I met the writer Ron Hansen. And he read my work and he sort of took me under his wing. And he said, like, you know, you should, you should really try to do this. And I was like, okay, what do I do? And he's like, well, first thing is you should apply to graduate school. And so I did, I applied to graduate school. Um, I got in. And so that's kind of the beginnings of like how, how I started my writing life. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we understand that you're a graduate of the um, prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. We were just curious to ask you about what it was like going through that, that program. Uh, it was definitely eye-opening for me. I, uh, like I said, I really didn't have any creative writing experience. Um, I didn't have an English degree. Um, so I felt sort of like a fish out of water at the beginning. I mean, and creative writing schools often attract a particularly privileged group of people. And that was something I hadn't really experienced until I went there. And I'm talking like, you know, a, a huge amount of my class went to Ivy League schools and I, you know, I hadn't. Uh, and, you know, that was, that, I mean, my first workshop, I remember I, I felt it was like three and a half hours long um, and it was just focused on, you know, part of a novel that I was writing. And I just got, you know... I mean, I got bludgeoned basically. Um, and I remember thinking after that, I was like, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if this is like the place for me, but the director, Samantha Chang, who I, you know, I've become close with over the years. I mean, she kind of took me aside and said like, you need to get the voices out of your head. You belong here. You know, you're doing, you know, 
good work. And so she became kind of like my second mentor. My first was Ron Hansen, and then Sam became my second mentor. You know, because of her, you know, I, I stuck it out. And I, well, I that sounds like it was such a horrible experience. And it wasn't really. It was actually some of the best years of my, my adult life. It's very rare that you get to do this thing in an environment where everyone everyone around you has kind of the same goals and what you're doing is taken seriously. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you're a writer, you know, a lot of people are just like, we're not going to take that seriously, but you're, but for two years, you get to be taken seriously and you get to be around people who are taking it very seriously. And um, you just get to have lots and lots of really interesting conversations with really, really interesting people that hasn't been replicated, you know, in my, in the rest of my adult life. So, I mean, in, in little spurts and chunks, but not for like two years like that, it was a remarkable experience. And I like some of the best years of my like I said, in my adult life. Like when you applied, I guess you knew how competitive it was and you knew like the, the reputation that the program had. Like what was that like when you got your like acceptance letter or call or? I got a letter. It was, it was the very first, because I applied to 11 programs and that's what people do when they apply to MFAs. They kind of like apply to a bunch of programs. I applied to 11 programs thinking you know, it was a shot in the dark because I just didn't have like a lot of the credentials. Iowa was the very first letter I got. And I got, I remember looking in my mailbox, seeing the letter and saying like, well, I guess here's my first rejection. <laughs> um, and I opened the letter and it was the first three words were, we are pleased. And I was like, I, I just stood there in the, like outside my mailbox was outside. I just stood there and just like stared at it. I was like, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, it was definitely a defining moment of my life. You know, I was like, I'm actually, I'm going to this very prestigious writing school and like, uh, like, who am I? <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I was working at a restaurant in Lincoln. I was like, it was this restaurant called Spaghetti Works <laughs> and we, we served unlimited pasta <laughs> and that was my job. That was like my life. I was, I, I like worked there at night and I wrote during the day. And so I was like, yeah. So when I got that letter, I was just like, oh, wow. And then I got, you know, my second letter was also an acceptance. And my third letter was also an acceptance. And then everything else was rejection. So, but after the third letter, I was just like, wow, like, I mean, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was great. We don't want to uh, put you on the spot, I guess, but, um, as you would know, like in recent years, there's been some uh, conversation and critique of of MFA programs and um, and the traditional writers' workshop format for basically being too white. And so, yeah, we were wondering, like at the time, were you one of the only students of color at Iowa, and was um, Samantha Chang like one of the only faculty of color? And yeah, just wondering what your experience was like. No, my experience in that regard, yeah, it was certainly, there was certainly more white than non-white students, but Sam Chang has made it a priority to, um, you know, to recruit 
people of color into the program. My class was her very first class that she chose. And you can tell that like, mm. you know, in the, in the composition of the student body that she definitely was thinking about that because it wasn't, it certainly was mostly white, but it wasn't like, it wasn't glaringly so like um, I've seen, you know, other programs. And now, you know, years later, it's very, I mean, the, the composition of Iowa classes are pretty diverse. Um, so I'm glad that we had, you know, that the director of that program, you know, puts that as a priority. Is this something that she thinks about, you know, when she's, uh, when they're doing um, recruitment and, um I don't, we definitely had conversations about uh, approaches, like how like a white person approaches a particular manuscript versus a person of color approaching a particular manuscript. And those were uh, very heated discussions, but they were good and necessary. We just read or um, like kind of devoured your latest novel, Reprieve, and um, for our listeners, we'll just read this brief synopsis like from the book. On April 27th, 1997, four contestants make it to the final cell of the Quigley House, a full contact haunted escape room in Lincoln, Nebraska, famous for its monstrosities, booby traps and ghoulishly costumed actors. If the group can endure these horrors without shouting the safe word, reprieve, they'll win a substantial cash prize, a startling feat accomplished by only one group in the house's long history. But before they can complete the challenge, a man breaks into the cell and kills one of the contestants. Okay. (laughs) So um, I really enjoyed reprieve and particularly the way everything kind of came together at the end, you know, you explore these themes of racial fetishization, racism, and I think, and isolation. Um, So one of the things that stood out for me specifically was like the desire for whiteness or closeness to whiteness, um, which was particularly explored through one of the characters, JD, who is a gay international student from Thailand who who moves to Nebraska kind of um, in pursuit of a former English teacher that that he had a crush on. We're wondering if you could read a kind of extended excerpt from us for us. Sure. So I, I'll read uh, from uh, JD's character um, who uh, you just mentioned um, is a gay Thai international student who comes to the States in the search of uh, a former English teacher who he's fallen in love with. Um, and while he's in uh, Nebraska, he is also a, in, uh, you know, going to school, he becomes involved in a, um, LGBT group on campus. Um, And so what I'm going to be reading is one of, um, he goes out with the group and he has this conversation uh, with this guy, Chris Driscoll, uh, who is a white gay guy um, and sort of uh, kind of a popular gay guy, like a little bit insensitive. And they're out at this bar. I'll start there where they're talking. So this is Chris. 
So what's your deal, JD? You come all the way over here from where? China? What a place to come. You must have a ton of culture shock. Thailand, JD said, chewing on a fry. What's that, Chris said? You said China. I'm from Thailand. Oh, Chris said, winking. Well, it's Asian all the same, right? JD shrugged. He'd found it difficult to impart to Americans just how different Asian countries were from one another. Americans seemed to, seemed to see them as one big cultural mass, all with the same history, the same geography, the same government. People in America said Africa and Asia like they were countries, not continents. And yet when you talked about their state, their small landmass in the middle of an enormous country, they became self-righteous, indignant, inflamed. How dare you not know Nebraska? How dare you not know Iowa? How dare you not know Kansas? My state is the state. The gay guys, interestingly, were the opposite, deriding Nebraska, praising the coasts, wistfully planning on one day being in a city, able to look down on the simpletons of their youth. The server came back, checked on them. Chris ordered a beer. It was his fourth. JD also ordered a beer. It was his first. He tempered himself since the party. In America, it was best not to be read. Nick and Jared couldn't come, JD asked. Chris shook his head. His eyes were small, distant. He leaned in, smiled. Hey, man, he said, why are you drinking so slow? You're nursing that beer like a girl. I just don't want drink up, man. It's Thursday night. Thirsty, thirsty Thursday. JD smiled hesitantly, brought the mug to his lips. When he did, Chris reached over and pushed on the bottom, forcing beer down the sides of JD's mouth. There you go, Chris said. Put some hair on your chest. Or is that okay to say to an Asian dude? You don't got hair, I assume. Chris reached out, rubbed his hand swiftly across JD's chest. Nah, you don't. I can tell. Look here. He unbuttoned his shirt. Look at all that fucking hair, man. It's like a forest there. A hairy, hairy forest. Go ahead, man. You can touch it. It's all me. All me and all hair. He chuckled. You can touch. Seriously. You know you wanna. Next to JD sat Katie, the ruiner of pride floats. She looked over at Chris and rolled her eyes. What's that, Katie? Chris said. You want some of this too? You're such a douche, she said. Yeah, well, he said. Chris looked over at JD and winked, buttoned up his shirt. JD wondered what the wink meant. The beer buzzed in his head. He could feel his face getting hot. He wanted more to drink, but knew he'd, what he'd look like. Still, you know, Chris said, you could be cute. I mean, yeah, there are dudes who go for the whole Asian thing, right? I think there are dudes who only go for the whole Asian thing. You should try to hook up with one of them. What? Hell yeah. I mean, people got all got their taste, right? Take Nick, for instance. He like only goes for guys twice his age. It's weird. Like some hot guy will want to get with him, some 22-year-old or something, and Nick won't even give him the time of day, won't even say hi, you know? We'll only talk to guys for like our dad's age kind of gross but well it's each his own i guess anyway it works out for him because those guys go fucking bananas over him like buy him things take him places just go nuts so i guess it works out it'd be cool to be into old dudes i think but me you know i just can't stomach the thought it grosses me out he chugged the rest of his beer raised his hand in the air signaling signaling the server another he said and for my friend here too put it on my tab please 
JD looked at his beer. It was still half full. He was certain his face was turning. Everything felt warm. He looked at Chris and wished he'd touched his chest hair when he'd had the chance. In Thailand, he's obsessed over Victor's body hair, the dark puff that sometimes escaped his shirts, the soft golden padding on his forearms, the curled bristles on his legs. He'd seen body hair, of course, but only rarely, and it was never the flax coloring of Victor's. At home, he'd sometimes stand in front of the mirror naked, wondering what it'd be like to have a body covered in hair if it'd be itchy. Victor, he remembered, sweated a lot, darkening the pits of his shirt, streaking the front of his clothes. And JD assumed that all that sweat was because of the hair. That extra layer must had to be warm. Maybe that layer toughened you, though, he thought. Maybe because you were in this constant state of heated discomfort, you went through life ready to take on any challenge because movement itself was a challenge. I just don't get him, you know, going for those old dudes. There are plenty of guys who'd love to be with him. Normal guys our age. Chris smiled, reached over, touched JD's cheek. Look at you. You look like you're like 15, but you're like, what, 25 or something? You're older, right? 23, JD said. So you're like a double non-traditional student, like from Asia and older. That's nuts. They stayed for two hours. The rest of the group paid their checks and left the table without saying goodbye. They didn't like Chris. JD knew, <clears throat> thought him, they didn't like Chris, JD knew, thought him and his cohort insufferable in their idle, superficial chit chat. But JD wondered if beneath that dislike was also envy. Chris and his friends moved through gay circles easily, were accepted and often welcomed in gay male environments, and had a cadre of attractive female friends friends who adored them. Others in the group moped through their lives, bemoaning their weight, their height, their, relatively, their relative unattractiveness. Chris and his friends did this as well, but in a different way, in a way meant to elicit scoffs from others like, oh my God, I'm so fat, scoff. Oh my God, I feel so ugly, scoff. Oh my God, my skin is so dry, scoff. Girl, please. Three beers later, Chris and JD stumbled out of brewskis. The cold air sobered JD for a second, enough for him to realize that the night might not be so good, that he was likely to be sick, that his face was certainly beet red. He walked quickly. He didn't want to be around Chris anymore. Hey, man, Chris said, catching up to him. Why so fast? JD didn't answer. His dorm wasn't far. It'd take maybe 20 minutes to walk. He walked faster. Hey, Chris said, grabbing JD's arm, turning him around. Chris looked at JD and laughed. Holy shit, dude, he said. Your fucking face. I didn't really take a good look till now, but holy shit. You're like, JD pulled his arm out of Chris's grasp and continued walking. The exercise was helping him thick. He'd get home, drink four big glasses of water. That should sober him up. Then he'd sleep. Hopefully the room would stay in one place. Man, Chris said, like, you're in a hurry to get somewhere. We could go somewhere else. Night's still young, right? JD shook his head, kept walking. He didn't like college binge drinking in America. It seemed so silly. It was what everyone seemed to look forward to, and JD found that obnoxious. It was very common that late on a Friday or Saturday night, he'd hear retching in the bathroom. One night, he even caught a guy on his floor peeing in the hallway. What was it that Americans were trying to erase, he wondered, that they needed to binge so much to feel anything, that they needed to make themselves so sick all the time, and that they looked forward to this sickness, that they were proud of this sickness, saying the next day, man, I was so drunk, I was puking everywhere, as if it were a badge of honor to make your stomach revolt. 
He was in his dorm now, checking in, and to his surprise, Chris was still next to him. Yeah, I'm his guest. You got a problem with that? Chris said to the front desk guy, a pale, small-boned sophomore. Minutes later, they were in JD's room. Not bad, Chris said, looking around, but really it's better to live off campus. But I get it. It's like your first year here, right? With Chris in the room, JD felt suddenly less tired. He went to the mini fridge, pulled out two bottles of water, offered one to Chris, who just stared at it. Water, he said. It's pretty early for that shit, right? JD shrugged, uncupped the bottle, took a long swig. His roommate wasn't there. Lately, he'd been spending weekends at Simone's and his mother's apartment. JD didn't mind. He liked having the place to himself. What else you got here, Chris said. I'm sure you got something stashed away, right? Some vodka, maybe? JD shook his head. Just water and Coke, he said. No, that's not true. Who doesn't have alcohol in his dorm room? I don't. Well, I bet your roommate does. This is desk. Chris opened the top drawer, rifled through some papers. He Asian too, or is he hot? I don't think you should do that, JD said. He lay down on his bed. Though he knew it'd be a good it'd be good to sleep, something else snaked inside him, a warm, syrupy desire. He was a virgin, had masturbated constantly to the slow-loading pictures of naked men he could sometimes get on his computer, but had never touched a guy, had never dared. But now, drunk and safe in his dorm room, he felt like it was time, and Chris had come up for a reason, right? He hadn't just wanted to hang out. Guys weren't like that. Bingo, Chris said, pulling out a bottle of Jim Beam from Brian's file drawer. He unscrewed the cap, drank, exhaled loudly. That's good shit, he said, his voice more gravelly than normal. JD looked at Chris's stubble, imagined it prickling his face. He thought the contrast of that prickle with the thinness of his lips would be remarkable. It'd be right. You want some, Chris said, looking over at JD. JD shook his head. He moved his hand to his inner thigh. You guys could spruce it up a bit in here, Chris said. You know, decorate. It's a little too plain. I mean, it's okay, but I'm just of the mind that you shouldn't have a bare wall, that's all. You should always be looking at something. JD sat up. All he could do was stare. He didn't know the mating ritual for gay men. Should he go over to Chris, put his hand on his shoulders? Should he ask? Should he just ask him if he wanted to have sex? Should he pretend it was hot and take off his shirt? He'd seen all of this done in movies before, but in real life, it seemed strange and awkward. But still, he needed to try something. Are you hot? JD said. I'm hot. He pulled his shirt over his head and realized, even in his state, that the room was certainly not hot. Goosebumps bubbled his arms. Chris stared at JD, took a long, took another swig. Hmm. Serious? Chris said. You could get more comfortable. There was also a line he'd heard many times on television. Getting comfortable always required moving, removing some article of clothing. Your chest, man, it's like sunken, Chris said. Sunken? Yeah, you got to hit the gym, seriously. I hate the gym. Well, it shows. Chris took another swig, looked away. Look, I thought we could hang, but I got to get going, okay? This, uh, this isn't, it isn't, dude, I'm not at all attracted to you, okay? Sorry, just being honest. I was just too warm. Fuck, man. It's like I can't just be friends with gay guys. They always want more, like to jump my bones. Sometimes I just want to chill, you know? JD put his shirt back on. He felt small, inconsequential, embarrassed. He wanted Chris to leave, but he just sat there talking, berating. 
it's like the worst from ethnic dudes, you know, like they're all over me, like all the time. My friends too, we're not racist or anything. I mean, that's why I wanted to hang out tonight with you, but man, it's like, they just don't get that. We don't want to screw, you know, we all got our preferences and that's not ours, but they just keep coming at us. Like we're just going to give in one day and no offense, JD, but Asians are like the worst. Like they cut, they come over here from China or wherever and just don't get that we're not into them like that. I mean, we could definitely be friends, but they're like falling all over us. What's up with that? It's like they don't even like each other, just us white dudes. What's up with that? He took another swig, exhaled. Like I said before, there are guys who are totally into Asian guys. That's cool. But well, me and my friends were just not. And that should be cool, too. JD climbed under the covers, pulled blanket up. He closed his eyes, tried to sleep, but Chris's voice kept droning on and on in the background like an insect's buzz. I just want to reiterate that I'm not a racist guy, you know, but not being racist doesn't mean we want to fuck any ethnic person that shows us interest, right? Why are you talking in the plural, JD mumbled. The plural, like we? Well, because it's my friends too. I already established that. So you have the same thoughts? On this, yeah. Are you being bitchy now? Just because I said I didn't want to jump your bones? Jeez. I thought you were different, JD. Seriously, I thought you'd be cool, but you're just like all the rest of them. I'm tired, JD said. I wouldn't even pity fuck you, Chris said, wobbling. Like what? Did you think taking off your shirt was going to fucking impress me? That tiny little thing? Christ. Please go. Oh, I'll go. I'll go now. Such a fucking shame, man. Here I am reaching out and this is how you respond. Well, if that's how you're going to be, you're going to have a tough time in America. I'll tell you that. JD didn't say anything, just closed his eyes tighter. He felt the cold sting of tears in his sinuses and tried his best to keep them at bay. See a loser, Chris said and left. JD rolled over in his bed. Before he closed his eyes, he looked at Brian's desk. The Jim Beam bottle was gone. Thank you. Thank you. Before Hannah asks the question, I just want to like remind listeners that this is like a horror novel. (laughs) (laughs) The the reality of it is (laughs) horrific in its own way, right? I have read that section now a a few times and um, like I find it... um, way too personally relatable I have to say like it brings up some like long banished kind of memories of encounters during like college and I can just say for me that just that um desperation to be accepted and to belong in some way to the um in group which was always white which which kind of still is white, you know, often. (laughs) And then, like, at the same time, being kind of constantly othered and reminded of the the power dynamic, um, I feel that, like, right right in my chest. It's like, um, and then at the very end, there's that, like, final kind of, like, twisting of the knife. It's, um, yeah, has this very, (laughs) like, visceral effect for me. I'm just, like, cringing all over. yeah, but also actually, like this time, I really like heard um, like the humor of it came out as well. I mean, like a, kind of a a bitter kind of humor, but um, <laughs> so funny. 
So I guess we're wondering what it was like for you to explore these issues of race and racism um, very like head on, I guess, for the first time, as we understand um, in this novel. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time I've read that section out loud. And um, I, I too, am having sort of a, re- I mean, I've read it like hundreds and hundreds of times, uh, but I've never read it out loud. Um, and so I'm having sort of a reaction right now. Um, I'm, I'm remembering encounters that I've had in my life and that other Asian friends that I've talked to have told me about in their lives. You know, you kind of want to go back to that person and be like, shake them a little bit and be like, you don't need this. You don't need to be, you don't need to be a part of a group that doesn't want you, you know, that's not necessary for your, for for you to have a fruitful life. You know, Uh, I mean, just starting this book, I wanted to explore uh, racial fetishism um, simply because I, I hadn't, it's something that I thought about quite a bit and it's something that, um, you know, I've talked to quite a bit with friends and it's just something that I haven't really seen a whole lot in, um, in fiction. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, when we talk about racism, sometimes we don't want, we want to avoid talking about the implication of love. You know, we don't want to talk about love and race in a, in a way that's going to maybe taint your idea of love because we want to think of love as pure. We want to think of love as like these emotions that are uncontrollable, um, that are like cosmically, you know, defined. But when you're part of a, an oppressed group, you know, you don't get that privilege to like have love be cosmically defined because you have, you and your people have undergone you know, all the horrors of uh, imperialism and colonialism and all of that has affected, you know, your individual motivations and desires. And I don't feel like that's something that we want to talk about, like, because, like I said, it would taint the idea of, of pure love. But I wanted to do it. I wanted to write it head on. And I knew that there were going to be people who, who had a problem with that. But you know, if they're uncomfortable, I guess that's fine with me. Um, Because, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. And I think we should have more conversations that put people in a zone of discomfort. Mm. But anyway, I I don't know. It's it's just a very interesting thing uh, where um, a lot of us have this, uh, because of a lot of things that have happened um, throughout history, uh, we've grown accustomed to desiring our oppressors, you know, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to, I wanted to put that out in the open and that, and sometimes that desire ends up hurting other minority communities, because if you want to be part of the majority so bad, uh, you will take on the majority's ideas, which often include, you know, this idea of supremacy, which hurts other minorities, you know, and it's very complex and very, I I mean, it's a very nuanced discussion, uh, but it's one that I wanted to just tackle a bit in this book. You you know, that's why the cast of characters is so diverse because I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that, uh, how those interactions perpetuate these, these problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. 
I didn't expect to be so personally confronted by my own history and, and you know, journey as a Korean adoptee and person of colour and... Um, yeah, and actually, and I'm just going to say, I mean, we might end up cutting this part, let me know. <laughs> but it's like, um, you know, so I, I can say I'll, for myself that um, like JD in a way, you know, like um, grew up in a, a white family and white society and like absolutely saturated by white media, only white media. And, um, you know, I also... <laughs> went through this process of like only like I don't know desiring white partners and um and then realizing like that and kind of um having to work through that and it's I think it's still an ongoing process um many many years later in my like late 20s to 30s and um but it, but obviously we're, we're very uncomfortable talking about that um because we don't want to, I think, bring our own personal like relationships or um, romantic preferences like under the, the spotlight like that. Yeah. I mean, I like when I first came out, um, you know, I, I ended up, you know, befriending a whole bunch of Asian, gay Asian men. It was 90% of them would only, only wanted, only wanted to date white guys. And I, I looked at it as more of like, I mean, I, I grew up in North Dakota with white parents, you know, surrounded by whiteness, but a lot of these, a lot of the, my friends hadn't, a lot of them had grown up in Asia, you know, they're international students. Um, so I was, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand, you know, if they'd grown up, uh, you know, in Thailand or Malaysia or like, you know, um, Korea or China, like I didn't understand why there is this reverence. I understood it for me because of how I grew up, but I didn't understand it for them. And so that it took me a while to realize it was like a much larger, it was a much larger thing to discuss. It wasn't just like, because I grew up, you know, in this environment, this is, these are where my desires lie. Certainly that, that contributes to it, but it's, it's a bigger phenomenon, I think, than, than that. Um, I knew a lot of people like JD, you know. <laughs> Ooh, I have to. That was like very emotional, <laughs> like to hear the reading, and then. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to like I guess switch gears completely now, and uh -huh. um, so we understand that you lived in Korea for two years back in two thousand and nine. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us like what compelled you to, you know, to, to leave your job at the time and, and, you know, obviously everything else behind to, to come to Korea? Sure. I, uh, well, I finished grad school, but I'd stayed on in Iowa city cause I got a job teaching at the business college. Uh, and I was like, I think assistant director of the writing center, um, wasn't a job I knew I was gonna like stay at um it was just something to do while I was like figuring out what I was gonna do with an MFA you know so but then so this was like 2009 or 2008 2009 I just had this sort of revelation I guess that if I didn't go now I might not go it was like a perfect time because I wasn't really 
tied down to anything. Like it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a job that I think I was going to stay at. It definitely wasn't like a career building job for me. And I, you know, I was single. I, I just, I had nothing tying me um, down. And I didn't know if that was going to be the case later on, but I knew it was the case then. And so I was like, I need to go. If I don't go, I, I might not go. Um, and I'd had like a long relationship with my birth sister. I mean, I'd known her since I was 17. I met her when I was 22 and we kept in contact um, for all those years. And so I had an easy way in and like, it's really easy to get a job at, as a, as a teacher, you know? Um, so I, I did, you know, I, 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 I got a job at a Hawkwan, which was, you know, another experience altogether, but like, um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, you know, I, I went, that's, um, that's kind of the long and short of it. It was like, it was a very, it was, a, it was an ideal time for me to, for me to do it. Um, so I did. So I guess though, um, it had kind of been in the back of your mind for a few years. I'm yeah. Yeah. And then the timing was right. Yeah. I'm just curious. Why did you, you know, like, I guess I'd say most adoptees just come to visit Yeah, or maybe, you know, you stay for a few weeks and, did you always intend to come and, and live in Korea for? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be immersed. Like I said, I had, uh, I had family there. I mean, I had my uh, birth sister there. So I already had a contact um, helping me through just like logistical things. And I thought like, if I came for a week, I'm not going to get the experience of, of being there, you know, like, you know, I needed to go and live and be Korean. And like the whole point of me going was like, I really wanted to be a full Korean person. Like I just, uh, that's what I was, I was striving for. I wanted to like move effortlessly through, through the country because that's just doesn't happen in the States. And I thought maybe, maybe it would happen there. Um, and it didn't really, but um, yeah. We read a beautifully written piece of yours in Off Assignment, which is a letter written to an unknown Korean woman uh, that you encountered during your time in Korea. And we were run, we were wondering, sorry, if you wouldn't mind doing another reading for us. Sure. This essay is called To the Woman Looking for the Hospital. If you don't know what Off Assignment or uh, Letters to a Stranger is, it's like this really great series where people write essays about um, in letter form uh, to strangers they've met, you know, along their life's journey. So um, here's mine. I assumed to you I was a fumbling dour hack of a man. I stood there right outside of Gangnam Station, exit one, looking down at your pained face, listening for words and pronunciations that made sense. 
Around us, cars roared and fumed, and people, Koreans mostly, skittered urgently by, racing to the shelter of the green glass subway awning. The sky was gray, the wind delicate and sweet, and you were animated and intense in your crop beige pants, your puffy blue blouse, your red visor, your silver earrings, your lipstick. Your eyes swam as you talked, elongating, then narrowing your cheeks. And your age, I'd guess, was somewhere between 65 and 70, though I've never been a good judge of these things. You were bringing, brimming with urgency, I remember, and as per usual, I understood nothing. I only heard letters and sounds strewn together in impossible stretches. But when you ended, your final words were a question, and impossibly, remarkably, I knew the answer. I smiled. I felt for a moment a crisp, searing joy, a voracious appetite suddenly satiated, the fruits of long-time labor abruptly realized. You said... Where is the hospital? Or rather, Pyongwan Odiseo? I breathed deep. I opened my mouth. What you must know is this. I prepared for this moment for a year. Tired, achy, determined, I'd dutifully gone to Korean language classes every evening. I'd resolved to have this moment with someone like you, a person on the street, a stranger, acknowledging me as one of their own, asking me an important question. For a year, I waited for you, and for a year, nothing happened. But I was ready. By the time we'd met, I'd already envisioned myself fluent, confident, viscerally Korean, responding elegantly, my grammar on point, my vocabulary impressive. Though you'd detect an ac accent, this I'd never shake, you'd listen to me and nod, and when I'd finished responding, you'd smile and thank me. This exchange would have meant little to you, just a fellow Korean asking a comrade for directions, but would have solidified for me a place in the world, at least for a moment. Because here's the thing, I couldn't speak Korean well because I was one of those babies Korea gave away. Ipyang is what you call it, adoptee. But really, that means nothing to me. It's just sounds. I'm American, you see, but only mildly. Because I'm not white, I'm hyphenated. This is how things are. I came to Korea because I wanted to eliminate this hyphenation. I thought that if I was in Seoul among all those Korean faces, faces I saw so rarely in the U.S., that full, complete, unadorned Koreanness would eventually invade. But it didn't. I was just dreaming. Outside the subway station, sky pulsing above, exhaust smoking the air, my first word to you, horribly, was go, or in Korean, ga. Your face twisted. Was I telling you to go away? I flushed, I flushed, wrung my hands. My second word was hospital, or pyongwon. You shook your head. My third word was you, or no. You turned away. I'd done it all wrong. But wait, I said in English, I can tell you. You walked, shook your head, the frenzy of soul swallowing you in its dizzying tapestry. Wait, I said again, but you were already gone and I was talking to nobody. Heartbreak transformed to anger. How could you? How rude, which transformed to despair. As real Korean people jostled around me, I felt bald and lonely. Where was my tribe if not here? How could I navigate a world where my fractured identity caused people to walk away? What sort of strange amalgamation was I? I don't blame you, of course. I mean, I imagine I must have looked strange standing there, struggling, spitting, red-faced, eager, 
perhaps you thought I was having a mental or physical break, or maybe you thought I was being facetious. Things like this happen. Most likely, however, you thought I was a foreigner, someone who wasn't at all like you, who couldn't string a simple sentence together, someone you would never invite to dinner. And that's okay because that's what I am and always will be. And our non-words confirm this for me, that Korea had abandoned me long ago and that the venture to assimilate wasn't paramount to living an authentic life. I have a Korean face and an English tongue and that, at least now, years later, is okay with me. And yet, I wonder, had you stayed just a moment longer while I examined my grammar and dug for vocabulary, while everyone around us spoke in effortless ribbons, would you have been my first authentic Korean connection? Would you, a stranger, have renewed my zeal for full Korean integration? I don't know. I do know this. I hope that your Pyongwon visit was full of good, surprising news and that hospitals in Gangnam or elsewhere aren't places you must visit often. That paragraph where you're, you know, trying to put the words together and she's, you know, shakes her head and um, and starts to walk away is um, so immediate I can really feel that <laughs> I could um like I think I I can say I came to Korea and I wasn't you know I didn't have the same goal or, or expectation of like assimilation or belonging but I have come out of just recently this, this period of um intense Korean language study and um you know I see now the the pressure that I I put on myself to really make some progress in Korean and I think And I think it's part of like a broader pressure that often adoptees put on ourselves when we come here. Yeah, to make some progress on in this kind of process of, I don't know, becoming more Korean. I think particularly sometimes if if we are reunited as well, I think that puts an extra pressure because I think we're like, well, we we have the best reason to to improve our Korean. We have um, this opportunity here and almost this maybe obligation to really um, speak Korean because we were fortunate enough to reunite and things like that. Um, And I remember from a previous interview that you've done that you said that you were also trying to, to write at the time, you know, in English because, because you're a writer. And in my experience, I think it's like, I think it's really hard when you're trying to like grapple with a new language, like as a, beginner or intermediate learner, a language that is so, so different, like grammatically and phonetically and in every way, like that is so far from English. Um, And, you know, trying to like just wrap your head around that and trying to like put sentences together for the first time with all of this pressure that like, like I'm Korean, I almost like I I should be, I should be able to to do this to some extent. Um, yeah, and then like also tr- trying to craft sentences in in English, like at a high level as a writer. I think that um, I think that would that is really difficult. Difficult. I mean, I, I remember after Korean class, after say four hours of Korean class, like for the first I don't know, say half an hour after class, I would like walk out with um, a friend, another English speaker, and I could barely like. It would take some time for for my brain and my mouth to like readapt to English, you know. And I don't know. All of this is to say that I really relate and empathize with your experience of um, 
of how difficult it can be and how isolating it is, I think. Yeah, it was. And I remember that moment very, very vividly. I mean, that's why I wrote about it. It's almost like, it, you know, it's weird. It's like one of those cinematic moments where like everything, like, you know, we were on the streets of Seoul. So there are like people all over the place, but it was just this one woman. And as she was like turning away, it was almost like she was like the only one that existed on this whole street. And it was like, this is like one of those defining moments, you know, that's what I felt um because i felt so like crestfallen you know i felt so upset that i was not able to have that simple conversation and it just like expanded and like bloomed inside of me for like a long time after that um and yeah you're talking about like the writing i was supposed like i was there i was supposed to like be working on a memoir while i was like living it and it just you just don't do that because a memoir you're supposed to have like distance but like so obviously it didn't it didn't go anywhere and i'm glad of that but yeah i mean i spend so much time with the english language like you're saying like that's like my life is to like craft stories in english and like you know, think about sentences and structure and all that. And then to go to some, to a language that is completely different and completely opposite was just, it just didn't work for me. Like I had this block and it was really, really hard for me to do that. I think as well, I'm just going to like throw this out this because I'm like, it's a personal kind of bugbear of mine that, um, I was also adopted um, when I was three and a half. And so I was, you know, speaking fluent Korean. Like my, my yeah. adopted parents told me that I was like babbling away in Korean for the first couple of weeks before I lost it all. And um, there were like a couple of like scientific studies that came out in the last like, I don't know, five to 10 years where they scanned the brains of transracial adoptees using like fMRI and showed like some extra activation, like deep in the language region regions of the brain um, when they heard their like birth language, even though they didn't speak the birth language compared to like, um, yeah, just people that, that weren't from that country that, at all. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. If compared to like, say other beginner language learners, um, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe because of that, those studies or maybe for other reasons that people sometimes assume that that if you were adopted at a slightly older age that you're going to have some advantage or it's it's like you you're going to like access something and it's all going to come flooding back or and maybe um like the opposite is true like like maybe um because we had some language at the time of that adoption trauma maybe maybe there's even you know Hmm additional blocks like it's uh, yeah yeah, just just my thoughts (laughs) yeah I think that could be that definitely could be true I I hadn't heard of that before but that that makes a lot of sense because you you're going through so much trauma um as as a uh as an infant and then as a toddler that it makes sense that there might be some language blocks because of that because of the trauma you're enduring yeah that's That's interesting. I believe you've talked about this in a a recent interview, but can you tell us a little bit about how your time in Korea changed 
your approach to writing? Yeah, I mean, I think about my writing before Korea and after Korea and during and while I was in Korea, and it's very different. I mean, the writing that I did in graduate school was not anything like the writing that I did while I was in Korea and after Korea. It was, a, I actively avoided discussion, explicit discussion anyway, about race. Uh, I actively avoided explicit discussion about sexuality. And I think my time in Korea, because there, because there is so much like emotional upheaval that happened there, I feel like that really, I, I really channeled that while I was there writing. And then when I got back, it was just there, you know, it was just all that, like that emotional torment was, was there. It's not that it, it, it wasn't really there before. It just wasn't really as unearthed, I guess, until I had gone to Korea. And so the writing that I did while I was in Korea and after Korea definitely, definitely was darker. And I think everything that I write from now on is going to be darker. Like before Korea, I mean, I was writing humor and I still like writing humor. And I think humor can be very, very dark. But if you read like my first or either of my books, um, the humor is the humor is there, but there's definitely like this, this, I mean, the, the darkness is pretty pervasive. So that's sort of, I think, how that experience shaped my writing. Not that I'm humorless, you know, not that I can't write funny things and not that I sit around like, you know, in the corner, all dressed in black, you know, hunched over my laptop or anything like that. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, it just, it just sort of, that happens, that happened. And I think it'll, that's just how it will be from now on, which I'm fine with. So did you kind of give yourself permission to lean into that darkness or did you return feeling more liberated in some way or more sure of yourself in some way or? As a writer, I wouldn't say that I felt liberated when I came back. I just felt like there was... I felt like maybe a little bit more purposeful, you know, like my writing wasn't just about story, but maybe I could, I could attack like larger scale issues through the writing, you know, um, the story always comes first and the story and characters for me always come first, but like the idea uh, that generate the ideas are what generates the story and the characters. So maybe not liberated, but, it's just, I just had a lot. I feel like I had more that I could contribute. So we've heard that your next novel in progress is about a Korean adoptee who returns to Korea. And I guess this is quite a, a big topic, but what, what has it been like writing your first Korean adoptee character? Uh, it's been fun. I mean, the character... I don't want to say the character is anything like me. I mean, the character, first of all, I mean, when you first meet her, she's a teenage girl. Her father is a hoarder and like, none of this is my life, you know, like, um, and, and then, so she meets a bunch, uh, some other Korean adoptee. She meets a Korean adoptee in, in her own town who ends up going to Korea and she ends up following, uh, not because she is all that interested in, finding a birth family or anything or doing that sort of 
thing, but because she has fallen in love um, with this other Korean adoptee. So, I mean, the, the actual storyline is nothing. It's nothing like me. I didn't go to Korea for love. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the it's it's been fun exploring, like, another adoptee character and not just her because she meets a group of adoptees while she's in Korea. It's been fun writing that because obviously I'm very close to that general experience. Um, although I will say the experiences that these adoptees have are nothing like mine. I mean, just their, their life paths and like what they're interested in and all of that stuff. Um, but I wanted to explore, uh, you know, fractured identities and how, sometimes that identity can lead you down really dark paths. I don't think I went down a particularly dark path, but I can see because when you're an adoptee, you don't ever feel like you fit in anywhere. Like there's like, you're just, you're just like kind of floundering and you're trying, you're like looking for your tribe, but like, you know, it's not them because you're not American or you're not Korean enough. You're not like, you know, you don't speak the language, you, you know, you're, you're not white, you know, there's just like all of these things that go on in your head as an adoptee, especially having been raised by people who are not your race, that is rife for like dramatic things to occur, you know? Um, and so I wanted to like, I, I go, <laughs> I go one step further. I kind of like, I won't tell you what happens, but like some really dramatic, terrible things happen. And it's sort of because they're all looking for this sense of belonging, you know, this idea of belonging, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be like, if I had gone down that dark path, I could have like ended up like some of these adoptees that I'm writing about. Um, <laughs> you'll just have to, I mean, I can't, I don't want to give too much away, um, but um, I'm excited for their story. You know, I'm excited to see like what happens. I mean, like there's this other separate, it's not separate, it's, it's intertwined, but the story about these two um, paranormal investigators uh, that also go to Korea. Um, so a, a lot of that, stuff is, is intertwined in the narrative so yeah i'm excited about it uh i'm, I'm excited about writing about the actual country because i haven't written about the country um and it's all set in pusan which i really love you know i loved uh i i spent most of my time in seoul uh but i did spend like six months in pusan when i first got there and i really love that you know that beach city and so i'm kind of happy that i'm get to i might go there just you know, for research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we, we can't, I mean, I was going to say, I'm like so excited to read it, but also like, oh, like a tiny bit nervous <laughs> to read it. <laughs> I think I have never read any yeah, fiction about um, a Korean adoptee who, who returns to Korea and also kind of um, something that, draws on like the the larger korean adoptee community as well yeah yeah well the, the community that this korean adoptee meets is definitely like a very small subset <laughs> she wouldn't be it wouldn't be the larger <laughs> korean adoptee community um <laughs> no they're like okay so they're like feng shui enthusiasts like so like <laughs> 
but not but not the not the type that you're thinking not like you know um aggressive furniture arrangement or anything like that um but like <laughs> they're you know the, the ancient chinese art of finding auspicious grave sites you know that's how feng shui started and so that's there's a group of adoptees who are um who are looking for auspicious grave sites <laughs> <laughs> so intrigued <laughs> well, yeah, we did have a, a question about whether or not you're using some of the material that you had intended for your memoir in this novel, but it sounds like perhaps not. Um, but dare we ask, maybe as, as one of the final questions, um, dare I ask about the memoir? Is it still something you're working on or still planning to, to complete? You know, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, I don't like, as you know, I, I haven't really written a whole lot about my time in Korea. I think I have like two published essays about, about it. Um, it's sort of painful, you know, for me to, to revisit that time in my life, but it doesn't mean it won't happen. I definitely am more comfortable with fiction, but even writing, you know, these adoptee experiences, um, fictionalized makes me realize that I can do it, you know, um, because I haven't written a, a Korean adoptee. I haven't written a Korean person. I haven't written an adoptee, you know, at all in any of my fiction. So the fact that I'm doing it now just takes me one step closer to maybe being able to write some non more nonfiction, maybe longer nonfiction about that time. Because, you know, I think even if I didn't even if I didn't publish it, it could be like somewhat not just cathartic, but it would just like organize my thoughts a little bit um, about my time there and like how it's affected, you know, my life now. So it's definitely not off the table. Um, it's something that people ask me about <laughs> a lot. I mean, it's something like people in like publishing ask about, um, but I, I don't care about that. Like, it's not their story. It's mine. And I'll tell it like when and if I want to, you know. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with the lovely James Han Matson, which brings our series of interviews with writers to a close. And thanks again to the Overseas Koreans Foundation for making these writing workshops possible. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you'd like to support us, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash Adopted Feels. Okay, so we also wanted to talk about um, the ending. And obviously, I don't want to give away spoilers but I felt like the way that everything like built towards the, the very end like I felt like it had this real momentum and particularly like the final scene um conversation between Kendra and JD and then JD's final dream I felt like that was particularly gripping but also heartbreakingly sad yeah so I was just wondering what it was like to to write that final scene um in my head, I imagined you having this like like real emotional release, like when when it was like I don't know when you were typing the final words of the first draft or something. Well, the ending 
went through a lot of changes. I had so much, so many problems with the ending. The first iteration was was very convoluted. It had uh, Kendra going to Thailand um, and meeting JD, and and it was just like a whole another plot point almost. Uh, then I like kind of strayed from that, and I I decided to focus on you know what happened to each character after you know ten years. Uh, or however many years had passed. And then I scrapped that. And, and then I focused on John um, just to, you know, I wanted to, you know, uh, have a closure with him. Um, but in the end, I went back to JD and Kendra because I realized what needs to happen is that they need to have a conversation. And so I didn't have to like add like elaborate plot points or anything. All I needed to do was get JD and Kendra in a room together. And so I put them in a room together and I saw what happened. I knew JD was going to have a, um, a sort of a catharsis, you know, he was going to have, uh, he was going to realize what he had done and, you know, he was going to talk about it with, uh, with Kendra, and then I also knew, you know, the, the ending was going to take place in the Quigley house, but not like, um, I mean, through the dream, it was, was going to take place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, once I once I finished it uh, and, and realized that this was how the, I, I wanted the ending to go, I felt enormous sadness for Kendra and I felt enormous sadness for her and her family throughout the book. Um, and I also felt like enormous sadness for JD, but there was something, there is some little bit of hope, I think, like that there might have been there that in the future, uh, some sort of reconciliation could occur, you know, and I wanted to have that glimmer of hope. I didn't necessarily want it to happen right there, but I wanted there to be, uh, at least a glimmer of it at the end. Um, so yeah, I felt, I felt, um, I felt sad <laughs> at the end, <laughs> um, happy that I was just like, this is it. But then happy that I was like, I got it. This is it. But then sad just because of what I endured, I guess, with my characters throughout the writing of the book. Is it kind of, um, I guess, do you feel some sadness also kind of like parting with your characters? Like when, once you're done? I think maybe a little bit later. I think once, because once you're in the editorial process, it's just a lot of, there's just a lot of work. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I feel like it's nice to have it just done. So I feel like relief to have it like, okay, it's out there. It's, this is it, you know, I'm not going to do anything more to it. You know, it's, it's gone through all of these different versions, you know, it's been copy edited, it's been proofread, everything's done, you know, it's out the door. So there's that relief, but the characters are going to stay with me you know, forever because I've spent so much time with them. Mm. Um, and like doing just readings, like even just now, just reading that section, like I just kind of became more, like I became involved again, once again in this world. And, you know, that'll happen every time I, I read it out loud um, or, you know, read it 
to myself, which I don't really do, but like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I just sit there and read my book at night. <laughs> 